0: Can you see yourself, do you see as I do? do you feel as I feel, how can you know, can you look at me hovering, dangling, I'm alive in here, I'm more alive than I have ever been, have the sun shining through me. This is the box he lived in for 44 days starving. So, the obvious, why? (laughs) It was a dream that I had. Like one day, I kind of had this thought. I woke up about a year ago and I started to obsess on the idea of living in a box, but a box of mirrors actually, so I could only see my own reflection for 44 days because that's my birthday, April 4th. So, I just, it's my lucky number. So, I started obsessing on the idea of going 44 days in a box with nothing. But then the mirrors I decided would make me crazy, like my mind would completely flip it. So we got rid of it and ended up making it like this. Why London? I just thought London would be a good place for, you know, something different for a change. Also, the tower bridge was so beautiful. It was like my dream to do something off of the tower bridge. I originally wanted to hang it off of the tower bridge, but we couldn't get any permits to do it there, so we got the field next to it, which was good. But, yeah, it was about 30 feet up. When it was windy, they kept it low, but when it wasn't windy, in case people would throw things at it and stuff like that, they'd raise it up so to So they like could 50. move it up and down? Yeah, it was on a crane. Did you expect it to get the attention it got? I mean, I kind of hoped that it would. But all of my friends told me everybody's going to get bored, so don't do it. Everybody around me said, don't do it, it's going to get bored, except for my friend Harmony, who directed the show. He, He said, just do it, who cares? And I said, yeah, you're right, who cares, we'll just do it. My original idea was that we wanted to make it bulletproof, but because we only had three weeks from when the deal was made to when the show was, when I was going to be put in the box, in London they can't make anything that's bulletproof, so it was like this, and when people would shoot fireworks at it in the nighttime, not every night, not everybody, but one in a thousand would do something crazy, when they'd shoot fireworks, I would jump because I was sure that somebody was shooting a gun at me. Like, I'd wake up, my heart would start racing. had to start to get a little whacked after a while, right? When people starve, they get a little... Uh, I don't it's think hallucinating so. Hallucinating? did Yeah, well, it's not hallucination. It's more like a heightened sense of awareness, like all the sounds became really intense, you know, and the colors really were vivid. Blues looked different, things like that. Were there days you thought of saying, bring me down? There was a couple of times, like the one time some guy late at night at like 4 a.m. climbed up the water tower because we didn't have enough security, he climbed up the water tower and there was these cables that connected to this and i think that he thought that those cables were what was holding me up and he started swinging everything and yelling go back to america i hate you i'll kill i mean crazy things and i was was i was waving at him and smiling but really i was like this is it i'm done because at that point i realized it really got into the psyche of some people in a serious way why well i think it would have worked that way anywhere i did it because i think for a lot of people It's kind of boring in a weird way because it's just a guy sitting in a box doing (laughs) nothing. So they think, well, what the Here we heck? are worldwide about a guy sitting in a box doing nothing. And it, I think it reflected more about like how, like if I felt a certain way and I came and saw somebody doing this, number one, I'd have a tough time believing it. Like it would be tricky like for guy, I would think he, him. I would think he had something, you know, it would just bother me. Little, little. And, then, and then if I was in a bad mood, I might throw an egg at it. And Not, not to hurt the guy, but I would think it'd be funny to see an egg blast. The, and the radio stations are saying, we'll pay you 100 pounds if you get hit, hit him with an egg. And then, but there was also, for every one guy throwing an egg, there was like, you know, hundreds of people that would wave and smile. Was it, was it pure water or was it yeah, like Gatorade? Ab- absolutely pure water. Gatorade is electrolytes, no, right? Yeah, but I would, no, if, if I had, glu- wrong, if I had glucose, my body's metabolism would have stayed up and it would have crushed itself quicker. and My brain would have been affected more. Actually, the glucose would have stopped the starvation process because when you're starving, your body slows down.
1: I think he's going to be fed by drip, isn't he? Yeah, he's going to be fed by drip, um, but just he says just water. Well, I don't believe that. You know, I'm a skeptic. David Blaine is an illusionist. I don't believe for one moment he's going to be malnourished, unfortunately. Unfortunately, um,
0: that's not very kind.
1: Um, um, well, it, it, uh, <laughs> it seems like a perfectly you know, I mean, reasonable it, it was, If you ask me two questions, is it possible, then it's possible with water, and it would be dangerous. But, uh, you know, this guy's an illusionist, and he's a very, very good and talented illusionist. So uh, I suspect that the the drip feed he's he's, uh, being given will contain glucose, nutrients and and all the kind of space tablets the astronauts take, which give him the uh, nutrition that he needs for those 44 days. I'm not saying even then it would be easy, it'll be incredibly boring, and uh, he won't be uh, getting any exercise for 44 days. Well, that's what I was just thinking about, 44 days without being able to move from a small box, and that definitely won't be an illusion, will it? Because we will be upset. Apparently not, I, I you know, no. I mean all sorts even of things, skeptical but, about that. but what about, are, are okay, clever. assuming
0: that actually for 44 days he doesn't actually move from that box.
1: Yes, yeah, well he's going to lose some lean tissue at mass, he's going to, his muscles are going to be uh, wasting quietly, anyone who's broken a leg and had their leg in plaster will know that the muscles waste away fairly hmm. quickly. He won't be losing a lot of weight if he's drip-fed with water and glucose and and minerals.
0: Although presumably at the end of it, after 44 days of not eating, he's going to have to be a bit careful, isn't he?
1: Yes, I mean, if you if you refeed someone who's genuinely starved, there are risks involved. But you know, I I, I don't think uh, David Blaine is really in the, in in the business of uh, risking his life for his art. I think this is a trick and an illusion. Mm. Unfortunately, I'm very good at sitting on the sofa next to magicians and seeing exactly how every trick is done. I always find but it very embarrassing.
0: But you don't know how this one's done. Lots, of, actually, no. lots of criticism from doctors and nutritionists about this. Um,
1: well, if you take stunt. it if you take it seriously, then, then uh, yes, certainly, I've heard reports from the association of parenteral and enteral nutrition for example who are up in arms that this is a, a sick stunt we do have malnourished people in this country and that mm. he's running a real risk and it's it's not a fun trick to do but then i see i don't it, take it. it
0: is slow. an illusion you know, now i it, notice there's writings here there's yeah. writings on your blanket yeah. writings on the wall what is that well this is it says god faith will and water and that's kind of what i had to make it through this so when i got faith god will and water. God first, yeah. But, oh, are they in order then? Yeah. Okay. So, um, I, when I was really miserable, I'd kind of write things that reminded me of how... You know, how to so you had it, a pen? Yeah, had a pen, a journal. What did you write on your blanket? There I wrote, 44 days and 44 nights of peace and torment. <laughs> you had both, right? Yeah. And how would you sleep? Um, this mattress would be unrolled, but it's really thin. You could feel it actually. Very thin. Yeah, so this is what I would sleep on, but when it was free. Don't smell too bad. Nah, it's they not fumigated that bad. it. Yeah. Right. No, so you'd it straight down but, on that. Well, yeah, but the thing about that is when it's cold out, which it was, it was 34 degrees every night, this becomes like a rock. So the first thing that started bothering me was my back started to kill. Because when you're sitting on this all day long, even if you have that thin pad, it kills. And then when you're laying down on it and it's like a rock, your back just begins to ache. And that was like the hardest thing right off the bat starting on day two. Were there always people watching you? Always. It was all day, all night. That was the most ironic thing about it. It's isolation, but in everybody's view. Now, what were you out... To prove, in other words, it's not a magical stunt. This is not an illusion. You were not disappearing. You weren't levitating. What were you proving? Well, for me, it's uh, like the idea of endurance, you know. And it's kind of like uh, I was obsessed with the idea of fasting and uh, and isolation. This come like from Young (laughs) Kipper. Well, yeah. Actually, when, when I would do Yom Kippur, instead of just going, you know... Uh, One day, you do seven. What the hell? Always, yeah. <laughs> and, but I would also do the first three days with nothing, no water, nothing. Until, and then I'd sit in a steam room at the end. Or even when I was like 11 years old, I would stop eating for nine or ten days. And even now, up till before I did this, I would go 20 days with nothing, but just water. How much weight did you lose? Uh, 54 pounds in about 45 days. What was the psychological impact of all this, do you think? I think in a lot of ways it was an amazing learning experience. I learned how to kind of uh, appreciate the things that, that are important, which uh, are simple things that exist right in front of us. You know, what we have, like a, a sunrise or a sunset, and everything that God puts in front of us. How do you to appreciate get... the incredible ability of the human body? Yeah. Which is unbelievable. I read this book, Fasting Can Save Your Life, and he spoke about how salamanders and starfish, like a salamander, when it loses its tail, even if it's starving, it'll digest its body and it'll grow a tail back because it needs a tail to survive to get more food. And so that's what the human body does, is it learns how to digest everything it has to sort of protect its brain and the brain stays completely functional. And uh, yeah, we're amazing. I think I was lucky because my mother had been so supportive and even though I didn't have a father she gave me the amount of love that was necessary. She was never on the telephone to her friends smoking cigarettes and she never made the television my babysitter. She would just really dedicate her attention to me even though she worked three jobs she was really serious so I think that's just love from somewhere is all that we need.
2: To episode 36 of Life and Life Only. It's been a while. Sorry, folks. It's been about, I guess, two and a half months since the last episode, which was the two parter on the Titanic. Since then, I've been uh, writing my John Lennon book, scrambling around for work to pay my rent while negotiating a harsh and slightly desolate winter here. It's brightening up now in um, mid February. Anyway, I'm back and I've got an interesting one for you today. As is traditional on this podcast, I'm going to be reading something I wrote a while back and then interjecting when the mood takes me. The thing I'm going to be reading today, an essay if you want to call it that, or a blog post, is called The Many Sides of David Blaine's Above the Below, mostly referring to an endurance stunt that David Blaine did in London in 2003. A lot of you listening, particularly if you're a David Blaine fan or if you're English, will remember this quite well, I think where he stayed in a perspex box attached to a crane and apparently didn't eat for 44 days. So the essay itself starts with um, a disclaimer. Please note, this post presumes that the endurance feats described did actually happen and were not fundamentally an illusion themselves, and also does not comment on the moral aspects of an unnecessary starvation for no particular cause or officially stated reason. If this is a problem, I suggest thinking of it as a story about an interesting fictional character who is perhaps trying to convince the world of the illusion that he actually exists. So as with the last podcast about the Titanic, I'm going to take the official version as read here. In terms of fictional character, if you're interested, um, the short story A Hunger Artist by Franz Kafka was definitely an inspiration for David Blaine. In fact, I think he said that subsequently. New York-based American magician and illusionist David Blaine was born in 1973 and grew up in Brooklyn, spending most of his childhood fatherless and very attached to his Russian, Jewish-descended mother. At four, he saw a magician performing magic on the subway, and a lifelong fascination was sparked. Always a, quote, strange kid, he felt isolated from his peers, a classic loner who allegedly once shut himself in a closet for two days to test his endurance, needed braces on his interned feet, and suffered from asthma. He found through magic a way of gaining popularity, just as other famous misfits such as Orson Welles and Woody Allen had before him. He moved to Manhattan at 17, dated Madonna at 19 and got his first TV special in 1997 called David Blaine's Street Magic. It gained attention not only for Blaine's loping charisma, but also for the fact that it tended to focus as much on the reactions of ordinary people on the New York streets as on the tricks themselves. These reactions transcending colour, social status and other social divisions. So just a quick comment. I like the phrase loping charisma. Loping literally means to run in a relaxed way, but more figuratively it refers to his voice and his whole demeanor of speaking slowly and never seeming in a hurry to do anything. I first heard of David Blaine around the time of street magic and I I like the calm style, you know. He he was a good-looking guy with a very intense stare, kind of a sleepy alpha male, I suppose you might say and he played on the air of mystery that he had. And there's a famous GMTV interview with a fellow called Eamon Holmes, where he didn't talk at all and he dealt only in gestures. And he'd drawn something on his hand and he was showing his hand to Eamon Holmes, who uh, looked suitably perplexed. You're famous in this country as well for appearing in a car advert, um, doing tricks as well. Car tricks, excellent. Is it a trick to talk? Is it? No. It's early in the morning. I don't really care. I just want a quiet life. You know, it's three minutes. I just want me to talk very little, him to talk a lot. When you were growing up, did you see yourself as different? In any way?
0: I didn't think about it that way.
2: No? And what do we get with you? Are you an illusionist? Are you a trickster? What are you? How would you describe yourself? I'm just a showman. Yeah. Is this part of the show? This this sort of meet and Mooney persona and the stare and the eyes and all that sort of thing that's just you the eye and the hand and what is that what what is the eye and the hand let's see that again it's protection protection what does that mean protection from death oh the thing about shutting himself in a cupboard or a closet as with john lennon on my other podcast glass onion on john lennon which some of you may know i often find little parallels and i remember once riding in the boot or you call it the trunk in America, for a journey of about an hour with my family, (laughs) just for something different and to see how it felt. So I I was a weird kid too, no doubt. You probably worked that out if you've been listening to my podcast long enough. Carrying on, in 1999, he began to perform endurance stunts, which appeared to be a sideline to his career as a, quote, illusionist, a term never quite defined or particularly applicable to Blaine outside the obvious illusion of magic itself. And I'm going to interject again just to make a reference to Darren brown this is very interesting he's got the same initials as david blaine and he emerged around the same time in the 90s i was on a podcast a year or so ago about the shadows in fact and i was talking about how in england we always seem to have equivalents of american so in that case we were talking about hank marvin and buddy holly and also cliff richard and elvis and then you had, you know, Diana Dawes was kind of an English Marilyn Monroe and Joan Collins was an English Elizabeth Taylor, etc. So it's interesting that you these two guys popped up at the same time. And I don't know if either of them identifies as a magician. Definitely Darren Brown identifies as a mentalist and doesn't believe in magic, i.e. something that you can't explain. I think the tricks I enjoy with both of these guys most are the ones where they're just showing cleverness, such as sleight of hand. If you look up David Blaine, Two Card Monty, I'll put a link in there for I find one. I like the ones where the skill is obvious, that it's just very, very fast sleight of hand, as I said. Fast work with your hands and manipulating the cards and things. I'm sure the TV nature of their shows involves some fakery or perhaps some priming of an audience. And in Darren Brown's book, Tricks of the Mind, it's a very good book. He actually talks about some stories of being in America and witnessing some TV hypnotists who were completely priming the audience when I mean, the audience knew exactly what they were supposed to do. I think with Darren and David, there's probably some more subtle versions of that, but they certainly have genuine skills, be it reading micro expressions, great feats of memory, or just as I said, being very quick with cards and good at distracting people. I like the thing about magic transcending barriers as well. So, you know, a five-year-old black kid from the wrong side of the tracks could have exactly the same reaction as a 90-year-old rich white woman, you know? It's one of those things where your social status is not really going to affect the way you react to it, because at that point where someone does something that you're not expecting, what you'll notice actually is that people laugh when people do magic tricks, and the laughing is, is just a it's an expression of pleasure at having seen something that... Just blows their mind momentarily. Anyway, moving on. So we're going to talk about his, yeah, as I said, this sort of parallel career, if you want to call it that, doing endurance stunts that apparently are real and not illusions. His first stunt involved entombing himself in an underground plastic box underneath a three-ton water-filled tank for seven days with nothing but water to sustain him, a feat he found so difficult that he immediately got himself a seven-days tattoo after he'd finished you can decide whether that tattoo is real or not. He declared himself a changed man, the solitude and pain having radically altered his perspective. As with his street magic, people of all walks of life surrounded him and became interested in the spectacle. Now, it might sound easy to do nothing and being in that situation, but I imagine that must be fiendishly difficult. I mean, there was a reality show I remember watching, that one uh, in the jungle in Australia, where someone had to spend 10 minutes in a coffin. I think there were rats in the coffin, which made it more complicated. But yeah, I I bet, you know, I think David Blaine said this, with the ones that involve isolation, I think it's actually after about an hour or two that's actually the worst time. But as I'll read later, and as I'll be telling you later, you know, he prepared pretty thoroughly for these things. It makes life simple, of course, when you can't move or eat, as we'll see later with Above the Below. And I don't doubt you could learn a lot about life when you're forced to keep your mind occupied with thoughts or meditation you learn to just breathe and survive and I guess those breaths would have to be deep and relaxed so he must have been in quite a relaxed state I suppose there would be a certain amount of panic and then you come to terms with it obviously he could have come out at any point but I think he's a person of pride and or ego you can decide and you know I think he was determined to stick it out I think the idea of the tank with water was that he could see people coming to watch through the water and they could see him i'll put videos of all relevant stuff in the show notes carrying on in 2000 he encased himself in a massive block of ice for nearly three days this time confined to a standing position as well as the other deprivations and discomfort on this occasion the stunt finale was televised but cut short when blaine appeared to lose his mind temporarily and was cut out of his ice prison i'll add a clip of um, david blaine on the joe rogan show quite recently talking about that
0: So the most difficult one was the ice by far. The ice was a monster. And the reason why was because it was a warm November. So the air coming through was like, you know, it, it happened to be a 68 degree three day spread, which led to the ice keep. Dripping the cold on me and it's radiating this way. But I'm also standing up in one spot completely still. And you can't sleep because if you fall asleep and you present into ice, you get frostbite. You have to cut your skin off, right? So I'm staying completely awake the entire time. And it's a difficult situation. On hour 55, my eyes just go out. And I'm now hallucinating like you could never, ever. It, there No hallucinogenic drug will ever give you those kind of hallucinations. Like What was it? First of all, it's amazing, but it's also when it goes into that nightmare part, it's scary. But there's also that amazing part of it. And if you have people after that stunt, now whenever I hallucinate on stunts, I have friends there that I say I'm going to start hallucinating. Just talk me through it. But so here's when I started realizing that I was hallucinating because you don't know when you are, right? when I started realizing it is I need to know wh- what time it is because I'm done at 10 p.m. because it was live on ABC. So I'm like, I need to know how much longer I got to go through this because right? it's getting tough. So I'm looking around and I need the time. So I go like this, what time is it? And the guy goes, 4.02? Yeah, so okay. he shows me 4.02. So I'm like, okay, that means we have like another six hours or whatever it is, right? And I wait and I'm in It's hard. Things are moving. Everything's weird. Spiders are walking up. People are like sitting in the ice. Voices are talking to me that I'm talking back to, right? But I'm waiting. and I'm waiting. And I wait for like a few hours before I ask anybody the time again. And I see somebody and I'm like, and the guy goes, four, (laughs) oh, three. Oh, no. (laughs) And that's when it all crashed out. It was like when that, when I that connection and then the hallucinations were just rampant and my eyes were all crazy when the drill was when the chainsaw was coming through i tried to grab it <gasps> yeah look at that oh you're gone yeah. <laughs> i mean if you thought the previous one was hard i mean
2: this one must have been hellish at times i mean three days no sleep can't sit down not literally freezing but very close to a block of ice and extremely cold i, I don't know if i've actually talked about it on life, life only about cold showers but i discovered through um Wim Hof I think I did talk about this on the Titanic episode actually one of the two there's a, a magic of cold showers and it's just like as I said then going in the sea you know if you go to an English uh, beach <laughs> the sea is invariably very cold but it's very liberating so I'm sure he, he trained uh, in that way I think I've seen video of him doing that ice baths and he trained a long time as I said, and seems to be generally be a guy with amazing self-control and able to deny his body food and Almost everything else, probably not sex for too long, there's a story about that later, but certainly other pleasures and things that others would call necessities, such as sleep and uh, two or three square meals a day. In 2002, he was lifted by Crane onto a 100 foot or 30 metre high and just 22 inch half metre wide pillar in a park in New York, where he stood for nearly a day and a half with only two retractable handles on either side of the pillar as a lifeline should he lose his balance. In fact, Blaine was battered by high winds and unusually cold weather for the month of May. Unlike the previous two stunts, this one had a specific finale. Barely able to feel his legs at this point, Blaine finished by jumping down onto a platform of cardboard boxes which had been constructed towards the end of his time atop the pillar. All three of the events I've described so far happened in New York and all followed a similar pattern of Blaine surviving deprivation, receiving water through catheter tubes and other devices and finishing off being taken to hospital in a weakened state while being filmed by the media and cheered by adoring fans. There is video of all these stunts and each time he tends to take the mic and make a speech with whatever energy he's got left. I guess adrenaline has been David Blaine's friend a lot of the time. A lot of people like this stunt because there was an ending that was quite exciting rather than him just surviving and then coming out. I'm not sure he was risking death because he trained for a year to tolerate heights, but even so, again, it takes quite an element of self-control in it. If you think that's an easy thing to do, then just try standing at the edge of a building for more than a few minutes without feeling a bit queasy. He was inspired by the story of San Simeon, which is worth reading about. Another reason people like this one was because we all know that feeling of being high up when visiting a tower. I remember going to the Leaning Tower of Pisa when I was a kid, my dad's Italian, as some of you may know. And um, I was at the top with my dad, and my dad just placed me at the top of the tower. It wasn't, let me make it clear, it wasn't a Michael Jackson thing when he dangled that baby, if you remember, over the top of a high building. It wasn't like that, but I was excited and uh, a bit scared. And, you know, we know that feeling of looking down from a great height. And, uh, you know, I think we've all been cold and had some confinement. We probably can't identify as much with the first two stunts. So, carrying on. In recent years, he's performed more stunts of varying effectiveness, such as being submerged in a water-filled sphere for a week, and then attempting to break the world breath-hold record, being shackled to a spinning gyroscope for 52 hours before jumping 30 feet onto a wooden platform, spending 60 hours hanging upside down, although in fact he briefly stood every hour for medical checks before a dive of death that went wrong due to adverse weather after the finale was delayed for a speech by President George W. Bush, and a rather ludicrous stunt where he was atop a pillar wearing a conducting suit that came in handy since seven Tesla coils were discharging one million volts of electricity on the pillar through the 72 hours Blaine was there. The repeating pattern of Blaine pronouncing prior to the stunts that he's, quote, cheating death, not eating prior to and during the stunts, and the finale of hospitalisation and a closing speech to his adoring and cheering fans had become repetitive and a bit boring. Blaine has also been criticised for his love of celebrity and seeing no problem doing magic to and hobnobbing with such dubious characters as Henry Kissinger and the aforementioned President Bush. Now, just a quick note on the later stunts. I thought the breath hold one was interesting, as was his later successful breath hold with Assisted Oxygen record, which he did on the Oprah show. And he also did um, a TED Talk. It'll all be in the show notes, so there'll be a real feast of stuff to watch if you're interested. It's interesting that his stunts ran some gamut from confinement and burial, then ice, then heights, then starvation and confinement, then water confinement, if you want to call it that, breathing, and then there was electricity, heights again, I think. He did one called Ascension. I think that might be his last one. I guess all that's missing is fire, but even he hasn't tried to set himself on fire. Anyway, he stopped these stunts, I think, and gone back to magic quite often with celebrity uh, volunteers, if you like. The one with Ricky Gervais is quite funny. However, between the Vertigo pillar stunt and his more recent events, he did his one and only endurance challenge in London, which he called Above the Below, an event I personally found very interesting and worth discussing and writing about, and which involved Blaine isolating himself in a box for 44 days with no food and only pure water. Once again, I'd like to stress that there is a possibility that this was some kind of illusion, and in addition there was undoubtedly a rather silly celebrity slash reality TV element to it. However, anything can potentially be learned from, and Blaine's writings while in the box and comments during and after the stunt, as well as my own observations, may make for thought-provoking reading. A quick note, he planned to put out a book, I think, but as of now, never has. It was going to be a book of all the things he wrote down while he was in there. Again, you know, presuming this was all kosher, try and work out 44 days before you're listening to this, and imagine having no food for that time or indeed no space to move and no privacy i mean i understand people thinking this is pointless or he's just a rich guy who's bored and needs attention but he could get all that stuff and a ton of money doing a a night of magic to celebrities i have a theory about why he did it which you'll hear later the box was plexiglass and just big enough for blaine to stand up or stretch out with about one foot of wiggle room lengthways and three feet across the box was suspended 30 feet in the air, attached to a crane near London's famous Tower Bridge. He brought a couple of blankets and numerous small items, including one which I'll mention at the very end, which may hold the key to Blaine's motivation. He went in the box on Friday, the 5th of September 2003, and came out on Sunday, the 19th of October. Both events filmed for TV specials, as was the entire stunt captured by a webcam which offered 24 hour access to Blaine, who, quote, slept with the light on throughout the stunt i can remember i think it was my mother she was quite interested in this as i was although i was actually abroad for most of this but obviously with the internet you could look at it and occasionally you just check in and see what was going on and you know it was quite bizarre i remember there was a guy who used to come every morning a window cleaner basically who would um, be hoisted up and would clean the box as you'll hear later there was stuff being thrown at it You know, I remember him knocking on the door and waving to David Blaine. David Blaine waved back. So it was, was, uh, in some way, David Blaine was sort of getting on with his day almost, you know, and I'm sure there were people that would come there every morning and it was part of their day for 44 days. The public reaction was a mixture of titillation as they found yet another alternative to sitting in front of the television, bemusement, cynicism at the apparently dubious authenticity of the stunt when practised by an illusionist, and a certain degree of anger and hostility. The great British public and others in the capital threw various items at the box, usually eggs, which made quite a loud sound as they smashed into the side of the thin glass, and one joker used a remote-controlled mini-helicopter to dangle a hamburger tantalisingly close to the starving Blaine. Women bared their breasts at him, and men their behinds. So yes, that was uh, what the guy was cleaning off the box. David actually did an interview with Larry King soon after he came out, which I believe is still online. And they went in the actual box and someone threw eggs at it and it seemed a very, very loud sound. He also had a lot of problems with the box being glass and the reflection of the sun and was at various times very, very hot. It was not Indian summer that year. I mean, he was in September. Apparently an Indian summer refers to the autumn when you get sunny weather. Summer-like weather in the autumn, anyway. And very cold in the evenings. And when you don't eat, you get cold quicker, apparently. One of the many things I learned during this. Unlike his other stunts, however, this one was extremely long, just shy of a month and a half, and those with shorter attention spans soon grew tired of it. So Blaine just lingered, and the power of nature, physiology and psychology began to take hold. The next section is called The Physical. Starvation is a process, and as the body experiences low energy intake, it enters into a series of metabolic modes, which miraculously serve to reallocate resources and defend the body by buying it time, before it finds its next food. When we're eating normally, we use as our main fuel source glucose, produced by the body breaking down the energy molecules known as glycogen after every meal. The stored energy is allocated to the brain, muscle tissues and red blood cells, this glucose burning mode normally lasting around 6 hours. After glycogen stores have been used up, the body turns for energy to fatty acids, which also miraculously fuel the brain after being broken down into ketone bodies. In this metabolic phase, the body's required level of glucose drops considerably. After about three days, all the body's cells start to break down protein, which releases amino acids into the bloodstream that are converted by the liver into glucose to maintain brain functioning. This stage involves your body cannibalising itself by chewing away its muscles, which then start to waste away. In a nutshell, your body eats through its fat, muscle and tissue in order to supply the brain with glucose, A little like a chess player sacrificing all their pieces in order to protect the king. The extreme deficiency of vitamins and minerals profoundly weakens the immune system, and death can come from infection or from a heart attack brought on by tissue degradation or severe electrolyte imbalances. Sensibly, David Blaine had stocked up on fat reserves and looked distinctly chubby when he entered the box. At around 20 days, he reported a taste of pear drops in his mouth, which was the taste of the aforementioned ketone bodies produced by the body's burning of fatty acids. Skeptics noticed some bloating in Blaine's stomach, which caused many to doubt that he was genuinely starving himself, but in fact the metabolic starvation phases can involve an enlarged liver causing a bloated stomach. Blaine survived, looking remarkably weak and having hardly moved for the last three to four days of the stunt, his blood volume sharply decreased and his heart having shrunk. After arriving back from his Perspex prison, he was weighed and found to have lost 24.5 kilos, just over four stone, over a quarter of his original body weight, and his BMI index had dropped from 29.0 to 21.6. The refeeding process was delicate, evolving first liquid food, which caused Blaine's stomach cramps and a sleepless first night, then finally solids. After the stunt and before refeeding, Blaine allowed doctors to take blood samples from him to be used for research into vitamin deficiencies by those in the nutritional medicine field. The results were published by the New England Journal of Medicine, thus providing a functional value to the stunt. So quite a lot of information there. You might want to listen back if you're interested in getting the details there. But it's this incredible survival mechanism that the body has, that everything is done to supply sugar to the brain let's call it to keep it functioning i mean i learned a lot of fascinating stuff about the body while this was going on and you know there's thousands of processes that are going on to keep us alive that's why people who decide to drink themselves to death sometimes go on for decades because all the poisons they're putting in the body the body is continually fighting back and i think it's both very fragile and amazingly resilient at the same time that's one of the fascinating things about it a quick note about david not denying himself sex as i said earlier i mean he's dated a series of models and glamorous women over the years and he apparently snuck his very attractive girlfriend at that time into the hospital and they had sex i think a couple of days maybe after he'd come out of the box and it got his heart racing to dangerous levels in his weakened state and the doctors either rushed in well probably they didn't rush in i or they were hammering on the door, or something like that happened. Uh, He has a tendency, I mean, like almost anyone really on TV, to exaggerate stories, and I'm not even sure if that's true, but it's a good story. I think David Blaine and others were glad that there was a point in the end in that he could, um, as we said, give blood samples to the New England Journal of Medicine so they could do some valuable studies on it. Now we get to the other side of this, the mental. David Blaine is a person who always looks either very happy or very intense at least in public. Through the the above-the-below event, he smiled a lot, often to himself, and appeared in good humour. However, he also displayed the obvious effects of the kind of extreme isolation that 44 days in a box entails, despite being physically so close to vast crowds of people, a curious so-near-but-yet-so-far situation. We have to add to that the effects of starvation on the brain and try to find what causes what. Firstly, studies in starvation have found that this alone can bring about both relatively mild effects like increased irritability, apathy and lethargy, up to full-blown depression, hysteria and severe emotional distress. There's also the undeniable fact that virtually all food eaten in urban areas is in the broad sense processed, so there is the drug withdrawal factor to be considered, as I found myself when I experimented with a diet of 80% raw food a few years ago. Add to that the sheer strangeness of not eating, and there is no doubt that it has a profound effect. After a few days of initial trauma, however, there is also a sense of calm, which has been mentioned by Blaine and also Christian Bale, who took on the extreme diet of one cup of unsweetened coffee and an apple or can of tuna a day for four months for his role in The Machinist. Very good film, by the way. I myself felt the same during my diet, suffering pangs and withdrawals initially, and then finding the truth that industrial food and the modern diet was as much a habit and a comfort as a genuine source of nutrition. So I would really like to talk briefly about food here. I mean, I could go on a massive tangent, and perhaps in the future I might do a podcast all about this. But um, yes, in 2010, early 2010, I put on quite a bit of weight from being home in England. I was living in Thailand at that time. And I'd overindulged at Christmas. And I remember when I came back, my girlfriend pointed out (laughs) how much weight I'd put on. And uh, sort of buoyed by that, again, uh, call it pride or ego, and for health reasons as well. I actually um, sought out some podcasts or audio books. I can't remember, about raw food. And from there, being the obsessional chap I am, I said I've tempered that down a bit, but certainly in those days, when I decided I was going to do something, I just went for it to extreme levels, generally. Anyway, I studied the food industry and was just utterly horrified at what I found, and basically everything you buy in the supermarket is processed to some extent you know some things are better than others what they do to fruit is particularly disturbing um in a place like england where there's not too much fruit growing seasonally it all travels vast distances and a nutritionist i knew at that time said that organic food when something's labeled organic it's more reliable but natural is a word that doesn't mean too much ultimately is it too much to say that it's all poison i mean I don't want to stop you ever eating again, but look up excitotoxins. I mean, when I did this raw food diet, I felt less hungry when I ate less, definitely felt calmer, and I realized that food anxiety and hunger are very different things, and that this food we eat, things like biscuits and crisps and that kind of a thing, which we would consider not great food, but not terrible food, perhaps, or things like nuts, you know, they often have stuff, you know, if they're in packets, they have stuff which makes you more hungry so it does act like a drug essentially during that raw food diet was i was in thailand and uh, obviously the weather was gorgeous and i used to live very near a hotel and i joined the gym there and uh, some of you may know my film podcast my third podcast film gold will know that my favorite film of all time is raging bull about the boxer jake lamotta and there's a scene there where he has to get down to the weight for middleweight because he had a lot of problems a lot of boxers do between training they would indulge a little bit in food and then they'd have to lose a lot of weight quickly and he used to jog in the steam room and me as well as doing this raw food diet and eating very little was doing that as well so perhaps one day i'll post a video i've got a couple of videos of me and i I look alarmingly thin but i did feel amazing i must say anyway the point i was going to make was that david blaine then had the advantage of not having certain food that clogs up your system i think he mentioned that about wheat and dairy Obviously what he did in the box, presuming it was genuine, is not a healthy thing. And there's some footage of him going back in an ambulance or I guess it was a private ambulance of some kind. And the guy who is checking him out after he's come out from the box says, you know, you've hammered your body. And some people hammer their body by hammering it with junk food or something. But he'd done the opposite. He'd hammered it by not giving it anything other than water. But I'm sure there was a a calm element once the initial panic had worn off. So going back to the essay, regarding isolation, the magazine Psychology Today states that human contact plays a similar role to food in that we function better and are distinctly drawn to it. Of course, some prefer alone time more than others, and spiritual practices like meditation and religious faith can undoubtedly provide an alternative to external contact, often more effective in fact, because the spirit tends not to have the kind of specific needs and wants that often compromise and limit person-to-person interactions. However, isolation will, in some people, expose them to increased stress hormones, erosion of arteries, high blood pressure, and diminished learning and memory. There is also an emptiness and, quote, breakdown, a word and concept that usually has negative connotations, but is actually encouraged as necessary by those who have experienced spiritual awakening, either sought or inadvertently found. For example, Eckhart Tolle, the author of The Power of Now, In a sense, it is the same no-pain-no-gain ethos that those in the field of physical health and exercise constantly espouse. Deprivation of both food and human contact simultaneously will no doubt heighten the senses by removing the dulling and overwhelming aspects of both processed food and mundane human interaction. David Blaine told Dr. Powell Tuck, who supervised his refeeding programme, that he had had mystical experiences while watching the dawns and sunsets from his lonely vantage point. The deprivation leaves a person open to things without distraction, and from the list of books Blaine has quoted from and recommended to others on his website, it's clear that he's the kind of person naturally drawn to heightened awareness and experience. I do want to reiterate that I'm not saying that long periods of not eating and not seeing people is a good thing, but I think, as with so many things in life, there's a balance there, and I think some people perhaps are addicted both to food and to people there are people that can't spend any time on their own which is probably fine up to a point but i I think um some time for contemplation and also um what they call now intermittent fasting both are good for you because i've had periods where i've fasted and when you do finally eat if you can avoid just wolfing it down you know it suddenly tastes amazing and you you really do appreciate food because i personally don't feel like i appreciate my food that much often you know i appreciate meals when they're with other people because um it's that mixture of the food and the interaction really anyway isolation is a of course a tricky thing and it's interesting to know that i think it was a book or maybe a podcast where someone who'd done a lot of work with prisoners reported that the thing that prisoners fear the most is solitary confinement you know and there's a couple of scenes in the Shawshank Redemption whether you think that's a realistic film or not, obviously it had a very crowd-pleasing ending, but there was a lot of critty realism involved in that. Prisoners fear solitary confinement more than being surrounded by rapists and murderers, you know, even people in the Category A prisons. So, I mean, that's something worth pondering. But as I was saying a minute ago, you know, I think alone time and time for contemplation, it, it can foster these amazing heightened states. And I'm a huge advocate of meditation, as you know. I mean, I've found that, doing the meditation retreats I, I did two episodes on this episodes four and five of the podcast if you haven't listened to those or you'd like a refresher i'd recommend those i also appeared on luke's english podcast and we did a follow-up again i'll put it all in the show notes which are going to be uh, extremely <laughs> crowded uh, this episode but it's going to be some good stuff in there in those meditation episodes i talked about doing these two meditation retreats they're so both 10 days without speaking and no caffeine very little sugar only simple sugar from fresh fruit vegetarian diet one of the things i did was i watched insects very closely doing their thing and it was absolutely fascinating to just take the time to watch it because you know it's one of those things that you'd never think twice of obviously being in asia there are a lot more insects that you see than in england but um there's a wonderful thing that happens when you just concentrate fully and you're fully in the moment you know there's nothing better really the next section of the Essays essay is called Performance Art as Reflection of Culture. Performance art, along with its cousin conceptual art, is a broad art form covering a vast range of areas, but in many cases centres on a direct and changeable relationship between performer and artist, often provoked and expressed with little direct coaxing by the performer and with a totally open forum to create or continue this relationship. Many scoffed at the notion of this stunt being a performance piece because Blaine was essentially doing nothing but waving, drinking water, writing in a notebook and on the inside of the box and occasionally having conversations and indeed a game of chess with those in the crowd below. The main devotees cheered when he got up to do some stretches and urinate, reflecting the modern culture of cheering heroes for mundane acts and this element was ripe for criticisms of its ridiculousness. However, performance art is about provoking reactions, and the fact that Blaine's inactivity maddened some in the crowd to the extent that one tried to cut off the pipe supplying him with water may tell us something about modern culture's nervousness about apparently doing nothing. Of course, Blaine was actually doing a lot, watching the crowd and their reactions, meditating, reflecting and writing. Perhaps the crowd could have asked themselves why they needed to be constantly entertained, As a person who has twice taken silent 10-day meditation retreats, as I mentioned before, I could attest to the fact that doing nothing for long periods of time nowadays is remarkably difficult, but worth it for the insights it can bring in a person so inclined. Now, regarding uh, performance art, I'm just actually reading a book about Yoko Ono, who is just about to celebrate her 90th birthday. Also, for fans of Film Gold, another person who's about to celebrate the 90th birthday is Michael Caine, so, two very different 60s icons about to turn 90. We'll be doing a podcast about Mr. Kane as well. But I'm bringing to mind um, somebody Yoko and work with, John Cage, and a famous piece called uh, 433. And it was a piece of four minutes, 33 seconds of silence. I'm sure there have been various performances of it, but I think he was sat by a piano with blank sheet music. But it wasn't total silence because the sound on the recording of it came from the shuffling sounds of people in the concert hall and room noise and I've never actually listened to it I know listened uh, seems strange for a silent piece but as I said it's not silent in fact there may have been people murmuring and there was an episode of um, Curb Your Enthusiasm I remember where Larry's in a new house and he's lying in bed with his wife thinking it's going to be silence and he keeps hearing noises around the house so not noises of people coming in just house noise you know creaking of floorboards or whatever it is So um, John Cage was trying to point out there's no such thing as silence and that um, we're always trying to fill it, basically. So going back to the essay, another way that this performance was effective was in reflecting certain aspects of the British character. By nature, or perhaps by cultural conditioning, British people tend not to like lofty pronouncements, such as the aforementioned performance art claim and Blaine's other comments about his love for the crowd and the exercise as a spiritual journey a phrase that the self-help book genre has at times successfully reduced to a fatuous cliché. Whether there was any element of a yank coming over and garnering so much attention is open to question, though some of the insults I heard yelled late on a Friday night and my one and only visit to the site did include references to his country of origin. As the stunt went on and blame clearly weakened, a more heartwarming British trait of sympathy for the underdog took hold – and most of the original detractors either stayed away or begrudgingly commended his endurance. The hysteria on his release from the box was a curious thing, while his rock star status to some young girls in the crowd was strange but more understandable. One young lady caught his stinking blanket when he threw it down to the crowd just prior to the box being lowered and clutched it to herself while being interviewed, saying she'd never wash it as she wanted David's smell close to her. This girl is probably now in her 30s, and one wonders if she still has the blanket, or if at least she's washed it. So yes, a couple of things to comment. I did go down to the site. Yeah, it was a Friday night, quite late. I mean, I think I'd been out, and um, I think I was a little bit tipsy. It was just I was just about to fly off, actually, to Thailand to start work. Maybe it was a week after, because he went in on a Friday, and I didn't go on that first day, so I guess it was day eight I was there. And um, yeah, there were some drunken people i don't remember anyone throwing anything but they were shouting some pretty nasty stuff i imagine he was probably asleep i think people were shouting go home or you know with more colorful language than that there was a kind of an anger but i think there was also some fun involved in trying to keep this guy awake you know and then on the sunday when he came out there were thousands of people there i don't know what the exact number was but a few thousand for sure and it was it was a party you know and it captured people's imagination a bit of a weird thing i suppose But uh, there's also been documentaries, there's one called Below the Above. I haven't watched all of it, I've watched a bit of it, and it's a story of people that were around this sort of subculture around the box that developed and some of their stories. So it, it was a very unusual thing, and it fitted perfectly. It was about two or three years, I think, after Big Brother started, so it fitted in with this reality show idea of people doing nothing or just being mundane and it being filmed, and some people finding it fascinating. Anyway, let's continue. The next section is called A Changed Man. I always thought that David Blaine was simply trying to survive this stunt in order to prove to himself and maybe others how much a person could tolerate and survive. So I was surprised to hear him say, about 30 days into the stunt, that, quote, I'm learning in here. I was following it. I think it was on Channel 4 they were doing daily updates with photos and quotes, and you could definitely see him getting thinner and thinner, And uh, it seemed that he was surviving, but also, as I said, learning. Suddenly the spiritual aspect made sense, as he found what those on meditation retreats find after a few days and many hours without obvious stimulation, namely that a new perspective appears. You suddenly find how utterly meaningless and absurd most of life is. Are the things you own important, or is your home a, quote, museum for your stuff, as author and educator Dana Martin has observed in many houses? Is your career important? Perhaps at the time you're in it, yes, but in the film about Schmidt, the recently retired Jack Nicholson goes back to visit his former workplace a week later, perhaps thinking that they are somehow falling apart without their valued employee of 20 years or more. Schmidt instead finds that his young replacement is already fully trained and the company has quickly moved on. His two decades of service reduced to a memory in a matter of days. And just to say my dad found exactly the same thing when he retired. He went back and uh, I think he did have to train up a successor for a while. But he was surprised how quickly they'd moved on. Hopefully, he didn't take it personally. Blaine wrote down a lot of his observations while in the box, unfortunately declining to publish them. But he would have found that the magic of sunsets, sunrises, and smiling faces is only a cliche because of overuse, and that connection with nature and others is probably the greatest source of happiness available to us in this realm. The opinion I've just given almost certainly has a name, a label but names and labels sometimes appear to be a protection against direct confrontation of an idea that appears to be challenging but ultimately true. The courage to confront the possibility of something profound and go through the pain to find it is, for me, the ultimate personal reward in life. After a week or so of recovery, Blaine rushed fairly quickly back into his hectic modern life of money, celebrity, glamorous girlfriends and his two mobile phones, happy that he'd written down everything he learned because he'd already started to forget it. Like many charismatic characters, he is a contradiction, an innately spiritual person embracing shallow celebrity, said to be irritable with subordinates and as prone as anyone to attention-seeking. Perhaps our British equivalent is Russell Brand, who is also charismatic, slightly mysterious, and straddles the line between profundity and absurdity. Some love him and are drawn to him, some utterly detest him. The claims that Blaine's motivation was purely money were well countered by him pointing out that he could have made the same money doing a few magic tricks at high-profile dinners and events rather than starving and freezing in a lonely box. Blaine certainly likes to take things away from himself such as food, space, privacy and even air to achieve an end that is familiar to some but maybe something unknown to the man himself and always just out of reach. During his TED Talk in 2011 He talked about his endurance activities, focusing particularly on first the preparations and then the throbbing, tingling, ear-ringing, heart-jumping rigours of his record-breaking 17-minute oxygen-assisted breath hold and broke down at the very end as he remembered that place he went to where the pain is unbearable and you simply have to relinquish control. Perhaps the key to it all lies in one of the few possessions David Blaine had in his Perspex prison for those 44 days, a picture of his late mother, Patrice Maureen White, who died when he was in his early 20s. He'd always been close to her and regarded her as something of a saint, a single mother who took multiple jobs to keep food on the table for her children. She'd suffered a long bout of painful cancer that ultimately killed her, and David had watched her accepting her fate in her condition for months on end without any anger or bitterness. Was he perhaps playing out his version of this as a kind of sustained bout of grieving? Perhaps. That conclusion there was the thing I was alluding to earlier. That seems to make more and more sense, you know. I mean, as adults, we tend to recreate childhood moments, sometimes joyful ones, but I've found myself recreating poignant moments. Luckily, my mother is still here. I've never had to go through a mother having a long bout of cancer. Perhaps David Blaine felt guilt about his mother, and he felt that it was a penance. You know, I don't know if he's a religious guy, but... um, It brings to mind, you know, the idea of a religious penance, of having to put yourself through rigours and suffering and deprivation to square it with your maker, let's say. One of the other things I'll put in the show notes, uh, sorting out the show notes may take longer than recording this podcast. (laughs) There's a video that I think perhaps will sum up the polarisation. So if you hate David Payne or you found this stunt ridiculous and you want to put yourself through a few more minutes of torture, there's a video of... Highlights of his time in the box with the music Moonlight Sonata by beethoven and uh, I think you know you'll probably find this either profound or horribly pretentious, but you can decide that's it for this podcast. Thanks for listening, and um I promise that the time before the next episode will be shorter. I'm not sure what the episode will be, but my ideas page for Life and life only is overflowing i I've stopped adding to it because there's just so much, but you know as many uh, a filmmaker has said uh, Woody Allen, for example. Getting the ideas is the fun part. The mechanics of preparing and recording, obviously contacting another person if they're involved and then editing, it's uh, much less fun than the ideas. But uh, next episode will of course be something reflecting the overall inner and outer truth flavor of Life and Life Phony. And if we think about this episode, obviously the inner truth part was the spiritual aspects of this starvation stunt and some of the other stunts that he did. And the outer truth, I suppose, would be the food industry. And again, I would, caution you a little bit it's worth researching a bit and also the processes of the body and the importance of social contact which of course has been in sharp focus in the last three years but as with all truth topics you know you might find some troubling information in relation to food and the industry so as ever you know try and find a balance between informing yourself without depressing yourself because in the depressed state you won't be able to function to your full capacity and you won't be able to perhaps action some of the things if you're Activist minded, that you would be able to if you are fully functioning and in a positive state of mind. Once more, I'm just going to promote the meditation episodes, episodes four and five. They fit very nicely with this one, I think. And one more time mindfulness and meditation is something I'd hugely recommend to anyone, and it costs nothing. If you're new to the show and you like it, please share, subscribe, consider a rating or review. It all helps. I'm also a life coach, so if you would be interested in life coaching, or know someone else who might benefit, or if you'd like to give feedback on the podcast, please contact me at lifeandlifeonlypod at gmail.com. And that's it. Thank you one more time for listening. And until the next time, all the best and goodbye.
0: As a magician, I try to show things to people that seem impossible. And I think magic, whether I'm holding my breath or shuffling a deck of cards, is pretty simple. It's practice, it's training, and it's ex- It's practice, it's training, and experimenting, while pushing through the pain to be the best that I can be, and that's, uh, that's what magic is to me, so thank you.